is Arif Katra, and I'm the host of Voices Worth Listening To. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about diversity, stories that I hope will make you think and reflect on how we experience each other's differences. My goal is to encourage change in our individual perspectives and in the ways in which we live and work together. Throughout my 20-plus year teaching and consulting career, my students and clients have come in all shapes, colors, and sizes. But given the events of the last few weeks, my thoughts have been with those in my network that identify as East Asian. I reached out to my Asian professional network, and today I shared their stories and their experiences, even though sometimes they're pretty difficult to hear. The people I interviewed are successful senior managers, play pivotal roles in startups, some are senior management consultants and bankers, and a few have even gone on to be academics at some of the world's best universities. One thing I did realize, however, is that most of the East Asian professionals I spoke with, I really only knew their English names, and few have ever shared with me their Korean Chinese, or Taiwanese names. Sun Chong Park, Hyun Chong Grant, Sun Cha Kim, Yong A. Yu, Xiao Jie Tan, Tao Yo Fung. These were the names of the female victims of the recent Atlanta spa shooting. Their names matter because they led to their marginalization. First, by those who seem to belittle this mass murder because the victims may have been Asian sex workers, and second, by Captain Jay Baker from the Georgia Sheriff's Office, who said during the press conference that the shooter's attacks were not racially motivated, adding, um, when I when we sp- I spoke with investigators, they interviewed him this morning, and I, uh, they got that impression that yes, he, he understood um, the gravity of it, and he was pretty much fed up at the end of his rope, and um, and yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did. In the minds of many, especially the Georgia Sheriff's Office, the lives of Tao Yofeng or Young A.U. couldn't have mattered. Why? Because a bad day? Well, that's a reprehensible explanation for murder. But let's look at our treatment of people of Asian descent from a very different vantage point. Think about the movie Crazy Rich Asians or the blockbuster Netflix series Bling Empire. These two marginalized people of Asian descent, classifying them as ultra-rich, as pariahs, not part of everyday society, making them unreal and making them unknowable. The people I talked to for today's podcast identify as Asian, They are real people. We share neighborhoods. We shop at the same stores. All of us live, love, laugh, and fear. What do they share with Sun Cha Kim or Xiao Jie Tan? They too, in their lives, have experienced discrimination. In terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion, five themes capture the Asian experience in modern-day organizations. One, 
marginalization. Two, being treated as less capable. Three, a clear glass ceiling. Four, a consistent belittling of Asian identity. And five, an unbelievable level of courage and persistence against clear barriers to gain access. The first story I want to share with you demonstrates how many Asian professionals are consistently marginalized by their peers and their organizations. This is the story of my friend, let's call her Louis Hua. She's a very diligent faculty member working at one of the top business schools in the country. Li Hua's office door is always open to help students. She has no ego and no obsession with status. What she does have is an authentic commitment to teaching. Li Hua also has a Chinese accent. I tell you this because this reality weighed heavily on her, because it seemed to give license to faculty colleagues in her department, think accounting, finance, marketing, and her students, to actively marginalize her worth. So how did this marginalization happen? First, her membership in the peer group only allowed her access to its periphery. No one actually became her friend. Second, it was made clear to her that she was here to do a job, not to add value. Her opinions and input were politely listened to, but rarely taken on. See, At a university, this is the Death Star, because your progress is completely dependent on peer evaluations. Your peers determine whether you get tenure, and they determine whether you get promoted. When Li Hua's colleagues evaluated her work, two realities coexisted. One, her colleagues were meticulous in their evaluation. And two, despite clear strengths, no one seemed to champion any part of Luhua's work as important to students or the school. When those same peers evaluated white male colleagues' work, well, suddenly it was pretty relaxed, with many champions ready to stand up. What did this mean for Luhua? Well, this meant fewer promotions and no tenure. It was as though, in her case, merit didn't matter. The reason? Luhua didn't fit the mold. How did her colleagues justify their decisions? Li Hua's application didn't meet the bar. Nevertheless, most of Li Hua's students loved her because she was committed to their learning. But there was a small but vocal group of male students who epitomized the bro culture at the institution, who often confronted Li Hua, claiming... I can't learn anything in this class because I can't understand your accent. It was blatantly racist. Her colleagues knew about it, and no one said a word. As this comment gained momentum among students, Li Hua approached me and asked, Arif, what would you do if this was happening to you? My response? Well, it was a bit angry. I said to Li Hua, you need to share some data with your students. There are about 400 million people learning how to speak English in China right now. That's more than the population of the U.S. and Canada combined. 
If these students think you have an accent, they need to get their head out of the sand and look around. Because your Chinese accent, my friend, is what English sounds like by the majority of English speakers on the globe. But my anger? Well, it paled in comparison to the message sent by Li Hua's faculty colleague, Silence. And if you are surprised, don't be. In almost 100 years, there has never been a person of color who has been an associate or full professor in Li Hua's department of the business school. My second story demonstrates how so many Asian professionals are underestimated in terms of their capacity and capabilities. Let me tell you David's story. David works for a top-level management consulting company, you know, the likes of McKinsey, BCG, and Bain. David runs client projects, and he's noticed that whenever the project requires the delivery of a high-profile workshop, one that will be seen by the client's most senior managers, partners tend to suggest that David not take the lead, and instead encourage him to pick one of his team members to deliver that workshop. That team member? Well, more often than not, a male who looks the part. Tall, good-looking, and mostly white. Does this happen to David all the time? No. But often enough that David feels that at his firm, someone who looks like him, someone whose parents are Chinese, is simply less trusted to lead. Is that surprising? Does it make sense? Before you say it is surprising and no, it does not make sense, let me tell you that of the 51 partners that lead McKinsey Canada, not one appears to be East Asian, Chinese, Korean, or Taiwanese. BCG Canada? Of their 34 partners, two are East Asian. Bain Toronto? Of their 16 partners, none are East Asian. What toll does this have on someone like David? I asked him. David said that he's never been asked about how being Asian has affected his career progression, not even by his Asian friends, who he said, I know they go through exactly what I go through. See, when I grew up, David explained, my parents as Asian immigrants didn't have an easy time of it. Where the discrimination I suffer is sophisticated and hidden just enough to make it ambiguous, the discrimination my parents suffered was obvious, blatant, in your face. Growing up, I remember them telling me that I'd have to work very hard and outperform all of my peers if I was going to make anything of myself in Canada. And although they never came out and said it, it was also clear that from their perspective and experiences, they feared my being Chinese might come in the way of my success. David explained to me that in the Chinese culture, you learn early on to hide your vulnerabilities, because these are signs of weakness. And hiding your weaknesses is fundamental to a deeply-seated cultural value called saving face. 
But we're not talking about a weakness like not being well-organized or not being on time. The weakness David's parents were talking about was fundamental to David's identity. David said to me, Arif, can you imagine how hard it is to always have at the back of your mind that I can't come off as too Chinese? Because if I do, people will struggle to find me credible and capable. The third story I want to share with you is one that I heard from so many of the Asian professionals I spoke with. The reality is that for many, they know that for them, in their workplace, there is a glass ceiling. Let's take the story of Wu Jin. He was a graduate from a top business school and went on to work for a global HR consulting company. He worked in executive compensation. He was very successful and got promoted every year that he was employed with the firm. Bonuses in tow. But those promotions were always in the analyst category. In fact, he was regularly passed up to transition into management, despite receiving stellar yearly reviews. When Wu Jin finally gathered the courage to ask what he needed to do to get into management, he was told, you don't take your mistakes seriously enough. First, stellar reviews and yearly promotions are not given to employees who make repeated mistakes. Second, when Wu Jin did make a mistake, he course-corrected, learned, and showed demonstrable recovery. Third, Wu Jin was in demand. He was sought after by clients to work on their projects. When he asked his manager what he could do better, he was offered little guidance. In fact, he was told, you know, we don't have a lot of Asians working for the company, and I think you're doing great. It was clear to Wu Jin he had to leave. His other option? Well, he could buy a helmet, because his head was only going to keep hitting the glass ceiling. The fourth story I want to share with you is also common for most Asians in the workplace. A consistent belittling of Asian identity. Let me tell you the story of Grace, a professor working in the U.S. She has a Ph.D. in business from what some would argue is the world's best doctoral program. She also now works at one of the top business schools in the U.S. Grace is Taiwanese, born in the U.S. Clearly, some of us may feel, given Grace's achievements, she couldn't have faced many challenges, especially not the ones I've spoken about so far. As Grace completed her Ph.D., it was time to look for a job. But this wasn't Grace's first job. She had come from industry, where she had been a senior manager in healthcare. As she prepared to find her first academic job, Grace received three pieces of advice from her faculty mentors. One, keep your accent in check. And it's a good thing you don't have much of an accent. That will improve your chances of getting hired. Top schools are reluctant to put people with Asian accents in front of their MBAs and executive classes. Two, you may want to leave your wedding ring at home. Lots of schools believe that when they hire a female professor, her husband's job 
will always take geographic precedence, and so they don't think you'll stick around. As Grace shared this with me, I wondered if this bias worked more intensely against Asian women. And three, Grace's PhD was about access to healthcare services. Grace's ability to explain her findings was stellar. She's a master presenter. One of her strengths is that her slides are highly visual. She uses those images strategically to tell a story. As she presented her slides to her faculty advisors before going to an interview, she was especially proud of one of her slides that presented an animation of people queuing up to get into a hospital. It had a diverse set of cartoon people in line, black, brown, white, Asian, all kinds. After the presentation, an Asian faculty member takes Grace aside and says, take out the animation. You don't want to come off as some random cute Asian girl. You need to give off the vibe that you are a serious academic because you're walking into a world where there is a great deal of negative bias against you and the category of people we belong to. So Grace removed the slide. She tabled her creativity. She sacrificed her communication style. She became more vanilla. Because vanilla, after all, is the least offensive of flavors. When I heard these stories from real Asian professionals that I know, they made me really sad. But they also made me hopeful. See, during my conversations, I learned about their families, their careers, and their aspirations. I learned how hard they've had to work in every aspect of their life to persevere and succeed. Why is it that so many of the Asian professionals I spoke to have awful diversity, equity, and inclusion experiences in the workplace? And yet, so many have been able to succeed. The answer? Access. They earned it by graduating from top schools, they earned it by demanding it, and many earned it because someone gave them a shot. So what's the lesson for organizations? First, organizations cannot take solace in the idea of a model minority, one where they hold a few of their top-performing Asian employees up as a justification that they don't have a problem. Second, if organizations value being merit-based, then how merit is applied to hiring and promoting individuals needs to be equitable and transparent. The problem is that many decision-makers and organizations today use merit differentially to justify biased decision-making. These organizations may be very diverse. They just don't operate along the principles of equity. But access is less about diversity or equity, and more about inclusion. So what can organizations do to improve access? One, as a manager and a leader, don't remain silent when faced with examples of discrimination in your organization. Make sure people know they can come to you if they experience diversity-related challenges in the organization, and that there is a process for listening investigating, and acting. But also make sure you don't put all the onus on those being discriminated against. 
take the initiative to openly ask if people feel the organization is living up to the ideals of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Two, when your leadership team lacks certain kinds of diversity and is faced with evaluating candidates for leadership, bring in external experts from underrepresented groups to be part of the identification and evaluation process for leadership candidates. What you hear might surprise you, as these experts are being paid for their unabashed and unvarnished input. This small act will create much more representative leadership teams in both for-profit and non-profit organizations. Three, as part of their annual performance evaluation, all employees should be asked to provide an opportunity wish list. Employees should identify two opportunities they would like to have access to as part of their career development. One opportunity that is within the parameters of their current job and that they feel they are not being asked to do. And the second opportunity should be one that would afford them access to career progression. These insights could help employers create a much more inclusive work environment and equip them to facilitate access. Four, there is a belief that bias training can help because this training helps people recognize their biases and results in people changing how they do things. This should improve access for underrepresented groups throughout the organization. Research on unconscious bias training? Well, it struggles to support this hypothesis. In fact, bias training is unlikely to improve access because access is not an individual problem. It's a systemic issue. So if you are partial to training, make sure it's highly conversational and introspective, where participants have the opportunity to suggest how organizational systems need to change to improve access. Five, my last recommendation is that organizations need to conduct a diversity audit. In my work in this area, this means three things. First, it means helping an organization take stock in a cross-enterprise way of where it is in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Second, it requires the organization to identify enabling and disabling factors that affect access to opportunities within the organization. And third, co-defining a journey that everyone buys into that will help improve access for all underrepresented groups in the organization. If you would like more information about my work in diversity and strategy, please visit my website at www.strat-ology.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. Com. The music in this podcast is from the Toronto Tabla Ensemble. To find out more, visit torontotabla.com. That's the word Toronto and the word Tabla, T-A-B-L-A.